Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also sat down with the Father on his throne. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, it's a blessing uh, to come before your word now. And we pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, you spoke truth to these seven churches uh, through the Apostle John many centuries ago. And we pray, God, the same truth uh, would speak powerfully into our own lives. God, we confess uh, that like many of these churches that we've read about uh, so far, we have much to be conquered, much in our lives uh, that needs to be overcome. And so, Lord, we come uh, confessing that on our own, we have no righteousness, no standing, uh, no uh, power to overcome. And yet, by your power, by your grace, uh, you have given us strength, the strength of your Son who conquered the grave. May we conquer these temptations before us today by your power. We love you and we need you every day. In Christ's name, amen. In our uh, modern world today, there's a lot of challenges to the Christian faith. Many people who are opposed to Christianity for one reason or another. Uh, maybe one obvious one kind of movement is the, the people who are atheist. And so you know that word, atheist, means uh, people who believe there is no God. And so they would say, you know, that your Christians are wrong, that we, we did, there is no God. Uh, maybe you know the word agnostics. Agnostics believe uh, that, there, that, that we can't know whether or not there's a God. They would say it's not for us to know one way or the other, and for anybody to claim that they know is, is wrong. So that would be obviously contrary to what we believe in the Bible and what we know as true. We, we live in a very pluralistic society that says, hey, Christians can believe this, and these people believe that, and, and, and pluralists will say, hey, just, there's all kinds of different things that are good, and, and you, just, you do you, and I'll do me, and we just... We just all live our own lives as long as you don't bother me and I won't bother you. You know, that's kind of the pluralistic world. So pluralistic mindset or, or agnostic or atheist, all kinds of different challenges to the, to the Christian worldview and the Christian thinking. But I, I, I've seen a, a different trend, a different push against Christianity uh, that I, I think is probably more prevalent in our world than any of those. And they're maybe connected to it, but, but different and uh, more pervasive in our culture. And only recently did I come across a good word for this. Just, uh, just recently I came across this word. It's the word apatheist. Apatheist. It's kind of like atheist, but apatheist. You know the word apathy, like 
I don't really care about anything. So apathy and theist together is apathyist or apathyism. Isn't that a good word? That's our word for the day, apathyism. It means I just don't really care all that much about God. And it may not be, probably, there are very few people in the world who would raise their hand and say, yes, I'm an apathyist. This is the person who just doesn't think about it, just doesn't care one way or the other whether or not God exists or what impact that really has on their life. They may have some kind of you know, spiritual thoughts occasionally you know, here and there, but in general, they're either just too busy or too distracted to really care much about God. Now, I, I like that word, apathyism. That can be our, our word for the day. But it's kind of a big, complicated word for something that means, like, I don't care, you know? Like, you know, it, it means, uh, you know, unenthusiastic, uninspired, dispassionate. But again, those are all big words. There's got to be like a, if, if the word means I don't care, there's got to be like a more lazy word for that. So I started thinking about it, and uh, I came across a, a different word. It's the word meh. You know that word? M-E-H. Meh. You know, it's like, hey, do you want to go to the lake today? Meh. You know? Uh, hey, do you, do you, what, do you think, what do you think about the Bible and church? Meh. You know? what, what, how about this? How do you reconcile humanity's ever-increasing advances in technology and medicine on one hand with uh, this humanity's consistent bent toward destruction and violence and all kinds of bad behaviors on the other hand? What do you think about that? Meh. That's apathyism. It just, I, don't, I don't care to think about the big questions in the world. Meh, that's, that's what I'm going for here. Uh, you can look on the dictionary uh, app in your, on your iPhone. It has a definition for that word, M-E-H. Uh, it's expressing a lack of interest or enthusiasm, uninspired, apathetic. So there you go. There's your word. If apathyism is too much, then just go with meh. That'll work. Uh, but that's not us today, right? Like we're, you're in church, so you're not an apathyist. You're not taking on the, the, the world's biggest questions with an attitude of just meh. You know, you, you are in church. You are obviously seeking to worship God today. You, you want to, to follow the Lord today. And so I'm not talking about you, right? Well, let's just always be cautious to not rule ourselves out too quickly. Because if the, if the opposite of being apathetic is to be passionate, let me ask it this way. Are you passionate about God. You say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not apathetic toward God. Of course I think about the big things, and of course I have the answers and think about answers to life's biggest questions, but on the flip side, are you passionate about the Lord? Are you, are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking the answers to life's biggest questions? Are you diving into His Word so that you, you understand what God's will is for your life? Are you on that side? If not, then we got to be careful we're not in the apathetic side. Now, there, of course, are many people who just kind of have a demeanor of not being real passionate. And so you say, well, of course, I'm not like, you know, jumping around crazy Bible person, uh, you know, passionate. But, but I'm, not, I'm not apathetic either. And so you try to always try to find a middle ground. But I, I, I would propose this to you. I think everybody, or at least almost everybody, is passionate about something. Amen. Aren't you? Like, I, we have, my kids are just at the age now where we're getting into, like, uh, kids' sports, team sports, you know. And uh, so I've just been around just enough parents. Like, my toes have just barely started dipping their, their toes in those waters. Just enough parents around kids' sports. And I, I'm a four, year, four and five-year-old T-ball, you know. Like, and I have seen some passionate parents. 
And I just, I can't even begin to think about what's going to happen when those, I'm like, we don't even have umpires yet in T-ball. Like, there's no umpire. What's going to happen to that mama when that umpire calls a ball, a ball, a ball, a strike or strike a ball? You know, I just know I'm going to see some passion on that, on that field. Maybe it's not kids sports. Maybe it's your college sports, right? And if that ref throws a flag when obviously the defensive end hit the quarterback while the ball was still in his hand, and yet the ref throws a flag on your team and says, roughing the passer, and you just lose it, you know? Whew, I don't want to see it, right? Anybody got road rage? Anybody get passionate in the car behind the wheel? May not be enthusiastic about the Lord, but hey, behind the wheel, I got some passion. I'll show you some passion. Maybe it's turning on the TV, flicking through the news. You may not get passionate behind the wheel, but you turn on the TV and flick through some channels and you read one more thing about the president or the former president or Congress or state governors doing this, that, and the other. And woo, you're, you get fired up, don't you? Maybe it's motorcycles, maybe it's cars, maybe it's vacation, maybe it's the lake. There is something you're passionate about. You are not an apathetic person. I know it. I know it. Jesus' word says, how could, you, how could you possibly be apathetic, passive about this? How can we be passive about what Christ has done for us? That's what he's challenging us today. Where, where is your passion? What are you enthusiastic about? I, I, just wonder, I just wonder if we're passive, too passive, too apathetic about the Lord. That, that is a problem. If we, if we truly believe what we say we believe, that, that we are created in the image of God, and yet from the beginning of our, of our lives, we have been living in rebellion, deserving an eternal punishment from God, deserving the full wrath of the Almighty God to come on our lives. We believe that. And we believe that that same God who created us sent His very Son, who came and died in our place. That we, He took the wrath we deserved so that we now can spend our lives today and for eternity living with Him. If that is what we believe, we, we, we cannot respond with an apathetic, lethargic, lazy, passive attitude. It just, it just doesn't add up. The truth is, if, if you're not passionate about that, you don't believe it. You don't really and truly believe it. You're in church today, or maybe you're watching this online or later on. You're, you, you care enough to give this time, but are, are you passionate? Seek the Lord. That, this is a problem if we're passive about it. But the, the, the positive side to this is that it's not a new problem. It's not a new problem. It's a problem, but unfortunately it's been going on for a long time, at least back until the 90s or so, A.D., the very first century. Today we come to the seventh and last letter of these seven churches that Jesus is addressing in Revelation 2 and 3. And we've been calling this series Conquer uh, because in each of these letters, the, Jesus is presenting and, and recognizing the challenges each of these seven churches has faced. There have been uh, challenges about false teaching, about sexual immorality, about persecution, poverty, all kinds of major obstacles that these churches are having to overcome. And he's calling them to conquer them. But today's challenge is a different kind of challenge. It's the challenge of apathy. The challenge of, meh, you know, I don't care. Jesus wrote this to the church in Laodicea. He says, uh, this is Revelation 3 beginning in verse 5. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
neither hot nor cold. They are lukewarm. They are apathetic. If you've got the message translation of your Bible in front of you, it says you're neither hot nor cold. You're just meh. No, it doesn't say that. I'm just kidding. But it's the idea. They're apathetic. They claim to be Christians, but they sound a lot more like apatheists. Why? What was going on in Laodicea to make, this like, make them like this? I mean, we've been reading these, these, these letters, and, and many of these challenges, many of the ways they're sinning and stumbling, they're understandable. These are, they're facing major obstacles in the first century world. I mean, Christianity is just a couple generations in, and there are some major evil forces coming against the local churches. So what, what was it in Laodicea? In, in Thyatira, they had these false teachers, false prophets that were coming against them. In Pergamum, they were being persecuted. They were being killed for their faith. We have a record of one, Antipas, who was killed for being a Christian. In, in Smyrna, everybody else was prospering, but they're persecuted and they're impoverished. They're poor. They're being kept from making money just because of their faith. So, so what's the challenge in Laodicea? Surely there's a good reason for their apathy. You know what the challenge was? Here it is, verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. You know what their challenge was? They had too much stuff. That was the challenge they had to overcome. Woo! Pergamum's got false teachers. I mean, persecution. Thyatira's got false teachers. Laodicea has stuff. They've got a lake house. They've got a nice new car. They're doing just fine, thank you. And because of that, they are wandering. And I wonder if we can relate to that. Here's the temptation that Laodicea faced that absolutely applies to us today. Prosperity can lull us into complacency. Prosperity can lull us into complacency. When things go well, when we succeed, when there's food on the table and money in the bank and a car in the garage and, and the bills are paid and, and we don't really have any major desires or once right now, we just grow complacent. The first century world, Laodicea, was at the intersection of some major roads, three major roads, and so it was this major commercial trading center, one of the richest in the, 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 the Roman world of the time. It was affluent, it was wealthy, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew this was the town. And the church knew it too. The church knew they were well off. If anybody can relate to Laodicea, it's America today, isn't it? We really are well off. And I know that it's, it's many of us, you know, we, you face financial and other challenges. I know not everybody's got it made in the shade. But comparatively to the rest of the world and to the rest of human history, we're, we're doing okay, right? We're, we're, we're doing okay. I um, was reading this book, I'll tell you my saying, Apathyism. And um, he was referencing back to medieval Europe. And so I kind of looked back into what life was like. Uh, in the year 1276, the average lifespan of, of the royal family in Great Britain, so I mean, you know, probably not getting any better health care than the royal family. In 1276, the average life expectancy was 35 years for the best family out there, 1276. The Great Famine struck all of Europe between the years uh, 1815 and 1817, and life expectancy dropped below 30 years of age. It was 29 point something at that point. And then, between the years 1346 and 1353, the, Great, the Plague, or the Black Death, came through, killing somewhere between 30 and 60% of the population of all of Europe in the course of those years. The average lifespan after the plague was 17 years. That was the average lifespan. 
So we got a lot of problems. Last year was very hard. You know, we had a lot of issues. But even still today, in the United States, the average life expectancy is 78 years. So like, considered, you know, relatively speaking, we're, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Life, compared to that, is pretty comfortable here. Pretty comfortable. It would have been very easy for us to be like the Laodiceans and say, you know what, I'm prospering. I don't really need anything. And that's where it can be so easy for us to fall into apathyism. That's the title of a book. He didn't coin this, that, 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 that terminology, that, that word comes, I traced it back to somebody in 2001 that came up with it. But a pastor named uh, Kyle Bershears uh, lives in my hometown, Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. And he just published a book by that title, Apathyism. And uh, he says two of the biggest causes in our culture of that kind of mindset, of just being apathetic about God, come from, come from being uh, comfortable and distracted. The more comfortable a society is and the more distracted a society is, the less they really care to be enthusiastic about the things of the Lord. When things get hard, and when we have time to focus and think and ask hard questions, then we start to think a little bit more about God. Take just our average lives. He describes, uh, you know, just this is all of us, you know, basically live this way. He says, all the latest and greatest consumer goods are just a click away and delivered to me, to my doorstep, in, a mere, in mere days. Even though I could drive a few miles to the next grocery store uh, to buy a ready-made meal, I don't even have to do that because that's what food delivery services are for, Right? Uh, in in our, this kind of world, people don't feel like they need God. I don't need to spend my days pleading with God to protect me from the threat uh, of disease or war. I assume there's a vaccine and the military is doing its job somewhere far away from home. I don't rely on God for anything. Instead, I rely on the affluence and the stability of my country. Uh, I'm just too comfortable to care about God. I don't, I don't need it. I'm not desperate for anything. I can wake up tomorrow. We can wake up tomorrow and just go through our lives. And, and we're just not desperate. We're not desperate. And so we just don't ask. We don't need God. So we think. With that comfort comes this level of distractedness, right? Our, our, our forefathers, maybe some of you, you remember back to your grandparents, somebody, everybody got a radio in their home, and then everybody got a black and white television, and everybody got a bigger screen or a color screen, and then then the screen went in our pocket, and then we all had access to everything everywhere all the time. And there are dings or buzzes or alerts all the time asking us to buy something, to read something, somebody likes something. We, we live in a very distracted culture. I, I was looking back, I was looking back, actually because of our anniversary, looking back at other years and things we had done, and uh, was amazed, because my calendar still sinks all the way back, I was amazed at how empty and clear my calendar was about eight or nine years ago. Like there's like one or two events a week that I had to put on my calendar. If you saw the calendar that Amber and I share right now, I mean, it is crazy all the stuff that we have to piece and put on there to make sure that we're in the right places at the right time. We're busy people. And we fill our schedules so much that it's easy just to kind of run through the next task, the next thing, the next thing, that we never stop and ask questions. We just live life full speed, expecting it just to kind of all work out. I think one of the, the kind of the worldviews, the way we think about the world, the way we think about God, is we, again, we wouldn't say this, but functionally, we treat God as a God of the gaps. The God, a God of the gaps. And what I mean by that is we really only need God when there's a gap in our lives. And this is, you could trace this back generations ago, you know. So there was kind of, take, take like science and technology, for instance. The people thought, I, I only need God 
to explain the, 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 the universe when I don't understand him. But the more that science will tell me about the world and about, about how this all happens and all this kind of stuff, then the gaps in my knowledge get smaller. And if God is just a God of the gap, then God gets smaller. This happens with, with medical technology or, or, or let's take material needs. When, when we're reliant upon uh, the harvest to go well in a given season, there's a big opportunity for things to go wrong. So there's a big gap in my, what's going to fill my stomach and put plate, uh, food on the, the table for my kids. There's a big gap there, so God's big. But when I'm pretty confident every meal is going to be okay, that gap, the dependence on God gets smaller and God gets smaller. Same thing with medical advances or whatever else. We, if God is just a God of there's a problem, if I only need God when there's a problem, and there's fewer and fewer gaps in my life, fewer and fewer problems in my life, the gaps get smaller. But God is not just a God of gaps, is He? He's God over every single part of our lives. He is the one who gives the gracious blessings we have of being able to drive to the grocery store. He's the one who gives us understanding of the universe. He's the one who gives us a, a reliable food chain and supply here in the world. Those are all gifts. He's not just a God when there's a problem. He's a God over all the good and the bad. Many people will only give up their, their kind of apathyism, their, their um, you know, passive whatever about God when there's a tragedy, right? When there's something bad, that's, you know, they say there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. That's a gap. Here's a tragedy. Here's a hard thing. And this is when I think about God. And it's good to think about God in the gap. But if we, if we only ever think about God in the tragedy, in the foxhole, in the hardship, then we, we don't understand who God is. Listen to the way Jesus describes himself uh, in verse 14. He says, the words of the amen. Amen is a word that means let it be so. Jesus is the one who's, who lets everything be what it is. He is sovereign over all things, good, bad, and otherwise. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is the one who is faithful and true. And it describes him as the beginning, the source of everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. We don't just praise God in the highs or just cry out for God in the lows. He is in charge of it all. Jesus is, in sovereign, Jesus is sovereign over all things. He's not just a God of the gaps. And so we worship Him through it all. That's who, who Jesus is. And so it's surprising that He has patience with us. It's surprising that He would even care about us. If you, as I read through Laodicea, there's one glaring omission in this letter of all the seven. Jesus says not a single positive thing about them. Every other church gets at least a little compliment, at least a little bit. Back uh, last week, he said there's a few names, a few people who haven't sold their garments. That was just like a, a side note, but at least there's a few. Not a single positive thing about Laodicea. He is only critical of their hearts. But you know what he says? Even for those he has nothing positive to say, verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Even though he doesn't have a single positive thing about him, he says, I still love you, and I still love you enough to discipline you. That's, that's so gracious. That is so gracious. It'd be easy for him to look at Laodicea, a, a, a church that thinks God's just a God of the gaps, and they don't have any gaps, so they don't need God. They're just prospering and going through life. It'd be easy for, the, for, God, for Jesus just to write them off. And yet he's like, I love you too much just to leave you where you are. I want to discipline you so you'll come back to me. They're sinful, and yet Jesus loves them anyway. In their prosperity, they're complacent. 
And it's likely that that complacency is not just material, but it's spiritual. They, they, we get letters. We see in Colossians, Paul mentions the church in Laodicea. Maybe they're like, hey, we know the Apostle Paul. We got wealth and we know, like the, you know the big guy that's on the earth. You know, so we're good. We don't need anything. And all that complacency has lulled, all that prosperity has lulled them into complacency. You see, that, that's the problem with wealth. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with, with money. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with a, a, a bank account, a savings account, a, um, a retirement account. There's nothing wrong with, with planning and doing all those things. But over and over again, the Bible warns about the danger of wealth. You know what the danger of wealth is? We start to trust it. We start to trust it. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In the Old Testament, God warns, hey, he says, I'm going to send a king. Eventually, you're going to have a king. But he warns that king in Deuteronomy 17 uh, against acquiring too many horses or having excessive silver and gold. Because when we have too much stuff, we start to put our faith in it. We start to trust it. All the prosperity leads to complacency and thinking that this kind of stuff is what saves us. There's wisdom in having a health insurance plan. But we don't trust our health to our health insurance plan. We trust our health to the one who has created us and the one who is sovereign over our lives. Jesus didn't teach his disciples to pray, give me uh, 20 years of, daily bre- of, of bread today. He says, give me my daily bread. We are dependent on God each and every day. Even if that bread comes from what you bought last week by the grace of God, it is still a gift from God that it didn't rot. It's a gift from God that that was given to you today. It's a gift from God that nobody broke in and stole it last night. Every single gift is a gift from the Lord. What are you depending upon? Are you depending upon your stuff? Are you dependent upon yourself? Or in everything, are you dependent upon God? You should hear clearly how Jesus feels about these people who are self-reliant, who are apathetic about God, because he doesn't mince words here. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes pretty much directly for it, right? Verse 16, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I looked into this a little bit because I thought that word was interesting. And apparently there is another Greek word that means to spit. And we're going to see these probably, he's talking about water here. So that's an appropriate translation. But that word actually means vomit. It means vomit. And the New King James is the only one of our, most of our modern translations that I saw that translates it that way. But that's the picture. He's vomiting. So this is what Jesus thinks. Being lukewarm makes Jesus want to vomit. Isn't that a pretty picture? Here's Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And he's like, you make me want to puke. Pat on the back, Leah, to see you. You did a good job. You made Jesus want to throw up. Like, I don't want to belabor this point, but I also don't want to like just pass over how gruesome of an image that is. You, you've been around vomit, parents, right? You've been around vomit. You've, you've had a stomach bug. I, again, I, I don't want to put too gross of a picture in your mind, but I remember the last stomach bug I had. I remember that feeling I had, I had eaten a bowl of chili. That's what I remember. And uh, wasn't feeling great and was laying in bed thinking, this, I hope this is going to pass, but I don't feel great. And... Um, and I realized it, it was going to come back to me. And uh, so I ran to the restroom. But uh, the, the, there's a, in my, the restroom we lived at the time, there's, there was a, a bathtub. And then the toilet was about six more feet. And I didn't have time to make it this six more feet. So it went all in the tub. And uh, that year, um, I got a call. And Amber was awarded the Servant of the Year. 
because she cleaned that up for me. And you can just imagine how awful that was. Vomit is ugly. This is not a pretty picture. This is not Jesus kind of painting over what it would be like for this church. Like, hey, guys, you're, you're trying your best. Keep it up. No. He's saying, you're, you're like puke to me. This is a gross, gross picture of a church that is far, far from the Lord. What, well, what, is, what does he mean by lukewarm? What, he says, I, I wish you would rather be cold or hot. Uh, and and I, I think if you're familiar with these verses, frequently the, the way this is taught is to say, hey, I'd rather you be one extreme or the other, either be passionately on fire for God or be passionately against God. Just don't be in the middle. That's frequently the way it's taught. And, and you can find a, a number of you know, teachers and even a few commentators who read it that way. But I, I don't think that's at all what he's describing here, at least not on the cold side. Yes, we should be passionate. And yes, we should want to love him. But I don't see anywhere in, in, else in Scripture where Jesus pats people on the back for being his arch enemy, like as if cold was a good thing. I mean, as if being, being against him was a good thing. I don't think that's at all the picture here. Uh, nowhere like So take Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a thief. He was a tax collector who was stealing from people. Jesus doesn't compliment him for being so against the people of, uh, of Jerusalem that he's stealing from his, from his own neighbors. Like, good job, buddy. At least you're passionately going the wrong direction. No. Zacchaeus meets with Jesus, and we know salvation comes to that house because he gives, uh, gives back. He gives, uh, gives to the poor, gives away half all his possessions, and he gives back to people he had stolen from four times as much. Like, he doesn't compliment the sin. He compliments the repentance. Yes, sinners hang out with Jesus, but they then repent. So the picture here is not Jesus patting the people on the back for being passionately against him. No, hot and cold, both are good things. And we know this from food and drink. If you've got meat, like, there's one of two things. You're either going to grill it and make it hot and yummy, or you're going to store it in the cold, so it's okay. If it's lukewarm for too long, it's dangerous. You can go to Starbucks or Dunkin' today, and you can order coffee one of two ways. You can order hot coffee, or you can order iced coffee. But neither of them sell lukewarm coffee, because that's gross. We sit at Waffle House for sometimes for too long, and that coffee is just, once it gets to lukewarm, it's gross. And if I drink it, I want to spew it out of my mouth. That's the picture here of hot or cold. Either one of them is good, just for different reasons. Um, and there are many commentators who agree with this. So one says, hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose and can only serve as a cause for vomiting. Another says, cold and hot water represent something positive, for cold water refreshes in the heat and hot water is a tonic when one is chilly. Both are positive. Lukewarm is the negative. So what's likely going on here is that Jesus is using an illustration from Laodicea's water source. There was a, a town close by uh, named Heropolis, who was known for having this hot spring. They had a warm spring that people would bathe in. It was comforting. Colossae was also nearby, and they had a, a cold, uh, cold, clear stream of water that was excellent and pure for drinking. But in Laodicea, they had a, a river that would dry up in the dry season, and so they had to build, they built an aqueduct, one of those ancient you know, Roman things, carrying water there. Well, the problem was it had to come from so long that frequently that water would get stagnant and lukewarm and start to grow stuff in it and be smelly. So Jesus is saying, there's some things that are good, hot, some things that are good, cold. None of them are good, lukewarm. That's not a good thing. So he's not patting people on the back for being against him. He's saying either hot or cold, just not lukewarm. Because the danger with lukewarm water is it could look good. 
It could look good on the outside and yet be dangerous, be life-threatening to you. He's warning against people who go through life looking like a Christian and they're just sitting on the fence and they're not passionate for the Lord. He says they, they, they pretend like they have no needs, but listen to the way he describes them. He says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. This is incredibly ironic for the church in Laodicea because as a wealthy group, they had so many things going for them. They had a bank, so people were, you know, had money in their pockets. Uh, they had a, a medical school, and so they had this uh, special ointment that was made right there in Laodicea that people would put on their eyes to help heal their eyes. And they had black sheep that lived there, that they grew there, or raised there, I guess that's the word, and made cloth and uh, clothing and carpets from them. And so these people would have thought, I've got, I've got everything I need. They got clothes, they got money in their pockets, they got something to heal their eyes. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are poor, blind, and naked because you are apathetic toward God. There's this dangerous, dangerous way of going through life thinking we are self-reliant that we have it all together, when in fact we have a lot of needs. Brad Garrison helped me last week with some background information that I didn't give him credit for, so I want to give him credit for this one. He said this about, about Laodicea this week. He pointed out, yes, they have a, a, an eye problem. They can't see. They're blind. But they have another eye problem. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. That's the eye problem they have. They think I, I, I. And they're not thinking about the Lord. Here's the opposite, the true opposite of being lukewarm. Yes, it's passionate, but it's passionate in a certain direction. It's passionate about being dependent upon God. If we're going to turn away from our sin, this is, what dependent, this is what being passionate in the right direction looks like. It means repentance and depending on God. So my call to you today, my invitation to you today is to repent and to depend on God. That's what I want you to be zealous about. Be zealous about killing sin. Be zealous about self-reliance, about going through life thinking, I've got it all together. I have no needs. I can take care of this. If you can, it's only by God's grace. And so it's all in dependence upon Him. I pointed out a few times that in this series, this Conquer series, the word conquer is used eight times in Revelation 2 and 3. And interestingly enough, the word repent is also used eight times. The world wants to tell you, here's how you conquer Here's how you, you take on life's biggest challenges. Here's how you Nike, right? The word for conquers. Greek word Nike. You got to be the fastest, the strongest, the biggest, the smartest. You got to work hard and step on whoever you got to get to to get to the top. That's how you conquer in this world. But Jesus makes it really clear in these two chapters. Here's how you conquer eight times is you repent. You turn away from sin. You turn away from self and you depend on God. So many times we go through life thinking, I have this all together. But Jesus is saying, if you're dependent upon yourself, then you're lukewarm and you make me want to vomit. You make me want to just puke you out. Depend on the Lord. Faith, by, by definition, is relying on somebody else. So our following Jesus is in dependence upon Him. And what He offers is so glorious. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. We don't get the, the, the clothing and the wealth and the, the sight from things of this world. We get it from Jesus. That's who gives it to us. 
And, and how are you going to get it? He says, come and, and buy, to, buy for me. How, how are poor people going to buy something? That doesn't make sense. What, what is he talking about? Well, the only way we can buy is that it's all by grace. Isaiah 55 says, come to me, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, the gift that God has for us, the clothing and righteousness, the, the, the ointment for our eyes to give us eyes to see, the, the, the way we come to know Him, it's all by grace. It's a free gift. We don't earn mo- enough money to satisfy ourselves, to make it ourselves self-reliant. No, it's all a gift from God that we know Him for who He is. Our call is to receive it freely. He stands at the door, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Every now and then this word, people will quote that verse and, and unfortunately describe Jesus like a beggar, just pleading with you. Oh, please, please, please let me in. And that's not the picture here of Jesus. Jesus is much more like a, a doctor who was gracious enough to make a house call to somebody who was sick and dying. And he was willing to come to the house so that person didn't have to leave and go to the hospital. Or he's like the chef who, who prepared the meal and he's coming and bringing it to your doorstep. The emphasis he isn't here on, on, on the opening the door, which is important. We've got to open it. But the emphasis is he came to your door. He knocked on your door. And if he comes into your house, we get to eat together. The emphasis is Jesus came to us. It is free. It is a gift. And if we'll receive it, we'll enjoy his presence forever. We are not self-sufficient. Living life like we're self-sufficient is just apathy. It's just foolish. But God has given us an opportunity to know Jesus forever. And the picture and the promise for eternity is incredible. Those who conquer will reign with Jesus. I, I, my, my homework, my challenge to you is to read Revelation chapter 4 when you go home today. And picture this. Describe, look at that description of Jesus. It's a description of Jesus on His throne with beautiful gems and there's lightning and thunder and a sea of glass and heavenly hosts are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're praising Jesus for what He's done because Jesus has come and He has conquered sin and the grave. He has conquered over evil. He's conquered over all things. And he, he comes, He's ascended back to the Father and He sat down at the right hand of God and His, enthronement, his enthronement, that throne was always His, but, but all that He did on earth was like the, the, the culmination of it. And he celebrates it. So he's sitting on the throne and everybody is worshiping Jesus because he's on that throne. Read chapter 4 and then come back and read Revelation 3.21 one more time. The one who conquers, speaking to us, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus has conquered all things and he's seated on the throne And if we'll follow Him, if we'll live for Him, if we'll be passionate for Him, if we'll repent of our sins, we'll turn away from self-reliance, if we believe, genuinely believe Him, we get to sit with Him forever. That's conquering. That's overcoming. That's defeating all the things of this world and living with Him for eternity. A relationship with Him, reigning with Him, enjoying His presence, there is nothing better. And if you'll conquer, if you'll seek Him, that's what He offers you.